So I had a conversation this week with, with somebody who's just become a good friend, and he's kind of in the healthcare provision, uh, profession, and um, we we're having kind of a heart-to-heart, like this idea of caring for people, and, and that sort of ongoing vocation, and what it, what it costs a lot of times, and, um, and he was just sharing with me, he's going, gosh, you know, every time I open up the news, I feel so inadequate, that I look at all that's going on, and I think... What, what good is this that I'm doing, right? This sort of simple little offering of giving back when you look at sort of the crisis that surrounds us. And, um, and I was saying to him, I, I think that's a wonderful place to be. And, and he's saying, well, you're kidding me. It feels terrible, right? Like I, all I want to do is get into this. But to go, there's something so clarifying And when we see the world around us and all the brokenness to recognizing at the very least that there's not enough of me to give to fix this problem, that if there's not more out there that's going to step in, that the problems here are are unfixable. I I love this about sort of C.S. Lewis's trajectory is that, you know, when he talks about his first thoughts about God, as he looked at the world and, you know, this, this sort of offering of like, just look at the beauty, right? But he, he was saying his first glance at the world, he saw so much brokenness that he thought, how could there be a God? How could there be a God bigger than the evil that he saw all around him? And they served in World War I and he and Tolkien in really hard circumstance and had seen just such grotesqueness. So when people talked about this idea of a God that was beautiful and a creator, he, he looked at the world and saw so much that wasn't beautiful. It was only until later that he realized that the way forward, the way to truth, was to get beyond this world, to realize that what he was looking at was too small, that the story was greater And that beauty drew us to a greater sense of truth that didn't just ignore the evil, but came in and mended it in such a way that it was more beautiful, that it was this story of redemption, as it turns out. And that God had this world that he had created with this incredible ability of these creatures of his to live in harmony with himself to actually live in a loving relationship with this God. But by giving them that freedom, he gave them this ability to twist the creation to its own end. And that's something that I feel like I've learned specifically from Lewis, is that there's not this category of good and this category of evil, but there's just good and then good that's been exploited that it's not which of these things wins out, but that this sickness gets removed, the thing that's taking good and twisting it. And Lewis would describe that as like a parasitic relationship, that that freedom has to twist the good, to turn it into an idol, to turn it into something less. And we live in a world that is suffering so much from that effect the way that goodness has been turned into something that is power-grabbing, the way that our ability to love God has been turned into this inward self-love, self-absorption. But that the fixing of this story is really the thing that God is all about. 
I remember when I was teaching this class on mere Christianity here, and there was a, a lady that came that um, was homeless and she was disabled. And I remember her asking that. Her hand went up and she asked that question. Why would God make a world that could break? And man, like talk about being put on the spot, right? Where all the answers seem small. Except to say, I think the story that God is interested in telling is one of redemption. That this idea of taking brokenness and making it beautiful, this is the work God does. That God isn't just a creator, but an artist telling a beautiful story, a deep story of redemption. And that he doesn't work in the medium of clay or paint or even of writing. He, he works with the medium of flesh. And this, I read this quote this week from Vincent Van Gogh, and I like, this was a late minute addition into the slides for today. But Vincent says, of all philosophers, sages, etc., Christ was the only one whose principal doctrine was the affirmation of immortality and eternity, the nothingness of death, and the necessity and importance of truth and resignation. He lived serenely as an artist, as a greater artist than any other, for he despised marble, clay, and the palette, and worked upon living flesh. That is to say, this marvelous artist who eludes the grasp of that coarse instrument, the neurotic and confused brain of modern man created neither statues nor pictures nor even books. He says so himself quite majestically. He created real living people, immortals. Isn't that beautiful? This is what Van Gogh's saying. He's saying he, he's not using these coarse things like paint. Sorry, Gil. I mean, what you do is beautiful, right? But we're talking about artistry on a whole different level that works within this like living medium. I love how he tells Jeremiah, go get your hands dirty, like go down to the potter's shed, like hold the clay and realize this is the work that I'm doing. And that God is doing it in a way that is often mysterious to us, disrupting things that we feel like are finished and, and then smoothing things out where we're kind of not looking for it. I was looking at the, the scriptures today as we're going through the select, we've been doing kind of a lectionary reading and following the lectionary for this rest of this year. And, um, and I love this because it points, it like spotlights different places in scripture. And then you start like figuring out where are the threads. But this passage in Psalm 107, do we have starting at verse 33, I think? Yes, I love this. It says, he turns rivers into desert, springs into thirsty ground, and fruitful land into salt, salty wasteland because of the wickedness of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into a pool, dry land into springs. He causes the hungry to settle there, and they establish a city where they can live. They sow fields and plant vineyards that yield a fruitful harvest. And poetically, the psalmist is saying God is sort of doing both of these things. In one sense, he's taking and depleting the water source, drying up the land. And then in another, bringing it back to vitality. And why would God do this? 
We like to think of a God who's just raining, <laughs> like drenching instead of this other side of what God does that maybe leads us into a desert, takes us into a place of desolation. And this is in response to wickedness. And, you know, we think this is a wonderful thing when it's their wickedness. But what we fail to realize oftentimes is that that root is in us as well. You've heard me mention this over and over, but I love that quote from Chesterton, his response, what is wrong with the world? When he was asked that question, what is wrong with the world? His response was, I am. And to go, there's something about that that's so necessary in this because otherwise we point our finger at them. They are the problem. I remember going on a surf trip. Chuck and I went down to Mexico, and uh, we were down there in um, an area that they ended up making a documentary about called Cartel Land. This was truly cartel land. In fact, when we got off the plane, our plane landed at night, and we had to drive in the dark, and our driver kept saying, don't worry, you guys, it's going to be fine. And we're like... What are you talking about, right? Like, don't worry, it's going to be fine. Sorry, Patty. I, I had no idea when I committed, but we had a great surf trip. But, um, <laughs> but we were in cartel land, and it, Chuck ended up recommending a documentary to me that, um, you know, you don't have to go watch. I'll just tell you the spoiler is like, in this documentary, you find out that who you assumed were the bad guys at the beginning of it turn out to be the good guys who ultimately in the end go bad. And you see this cycle over and over of corruption. The good guys come in and liberate only to turn into the bad guys, right? Who are the good people that are going to rescue us? Like me, like wrong, right? We want to think that we're the good one and they're the bad one. And so much of what scripture is pointing at is going, there's this thing in you that God has got to pull out, this weed that is in there, this cancer that is in there, that's constantly taking the good and twisting it. But that we have this God who longs for us to live these glorious lives. But until we can like get that thing out of us, that glory is a dangerous thing for us. I think that God gives it to us little by little, but always with a caution, knowing that that glory for us is like Turkish delight. We just crave it so much. Patty was talking about our daughter being on the stage and like the character in the movie, the actor came and saw, you know, and you see like she comes home and she's just like, ah, like glowing, the glory. And you go, oh, it's so beautiful. And at the same time, you're like, careful, right? Careful of that. Like we are made to shine, but there's this thing in us that's like, oh, that's what I live for. And so I think that we have a God who oftentimes will dry up the water, so to speak. And this thing in us, what we see through Scripture over and over again is that Nothing is immune to that sort of twistedness in me, that brokenness, even religion itself. In fact, for Jesus, this was like the greatest obstacle to his ministry were the ones who had taken all the truth of Scripture and twisted it. 
In Matthew 23, we have these verses. This is the gospel passage for today. And as I was reading it, I thought, it's so good. Jesus is basically looking at the Pharisees and he's telling his disciples, do what they say, but don't do what they do, right? They're speaking truth, but if you look at their actions, their hearts are far from it. He says, they do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries. That were these, they had kind of ultra literalized this idea of binding God's word on their foreheads. And so they had these things that they would wear on the front. I mean, which in one sense, there's some beauty to that, like obedience, but they're making them bigger and bigger, right? To like, look how righteous I am. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called rabbi by people. But you're not to be called rabbi because you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. Do not call anyone on earth your father because you have one father who is in heaven. You're not to be called instructors either because you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And, and I think Jesus is speaking there in some ways. It's, it's kind of like hyperbole, Right? Um, we can call our fathers fathers. This is my father actually right here. Um, nothing wrong with referring to a pastor as a pastor. What is wrong is attachment to these things. Finding our significance in these words. Wanting to find that place where we're recognized by others. So Jesus is saying in all of this, yes, follow these commands, but the second you turn this into your own self-promotion and elevation, you've killed it. All it takes is a little bit of yeast, he would say, to leaven the whole loaf. And so Jesus is going to say, here's what you do. This is how you live into the kingdom. This is like the, the sort of formula at the heart of it is that the greatest are to be the least. The least, or the leaders, I'm sorry, the leaders are to be the servants. That's how you work against this. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's like the E equals MC squared right there. If you want to know the like physics of the kingdom, what's the, like at the heart of it is here's the equation. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But you realize there that being exalted is not like removed from the equation, right? That to be exalted is part of the trajectory for each one of you, that this like call to glory is not this idea of like just remain hidden, but God saying instead, let me illuminate your life. Don't seek greatness, seek to be a servant and you'll shine. And some of you may be thinking, wow, that's so simple, right? And it is. It's so simple. Except think about yourself coming home at the end of the day. You're depleted. You're exhausted. You're stressed out. You come home and you go, all right, time to be a servant. Walk in. What needs to be done? Dishes? All right. It's my job, right? How do I make everybody else here in this place? Like, how do I lift them up? How do I consider their needs before my own, right? How many of us in that state of weariness naturally click into that servant mode? I'm guessing very few of us. 
that living our life in this sense of being poured out, Jesus is saying that's the way to glory, that these Pharisees are pouring all, they're taking it and pouring it all inward, and it's just feeding that thing inside of them, the brokenness. And this is kind of a plot twist in all of this. Jesus is saying, do things in secret. Go out of your way to give without any sort of recognition. In fact, he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, right? Like, live detached from it. But as we do, it starts to have an influence. It starts to become noticed. It starts to be recognized by people around. And and Jesus would say in the end, that's good. Just don't live for that, right? Right? You think about people in your life that you go, I'm so grateful for the life that they lived. It inspires me to live a deeper life. I was thinking about that on November 1st, like All Saints Day. And I think of two people in my life that come immediately to mind. One is this guy, Chris Davis, who like, I feel like really saw me as a high school student, saw the deep value I think about Mark Metherall, who, you know, he just became a dear friend, but somebody who called out the best things in me and the loss of them as they both died young, but how their lives continue to inspire. And Jesus, I think, would be saying, that's the kind of life I want you all to live. Those are the kind of people I want you all to be. These are lives of deep significance, of deep weight, of deep glory. And Paul comes to us as the very worst example of this, at least in his previous life. I think it's, it's no mistake as Jesus is telling the story, he's going, I'm going to take the villain and I'm going to make him the hero. And in the end, he's going to know he's a hero and he's also going to know he was the villain. And Paul becomes this like picture of the gospel, like one of Jesus' best statue, living statues that he creates is Paul. Because Paul is so bright and he's so brilliant. He rises right to the top of the ranks. He calls himself the Pharisee of Pharisees. But what you find in all that self-promotion is inside it turns into violence in Paul. You see how that, that cancer can corrupt, that this, this root of this thing drives him into this place of hatred. He persecutes not just the church, but as Jesus rebukes him, persecutes Jesus himself. And Jesus confronts him, blinds him, restores his sight, but then leads Paul. And I, sometimes we forget this in his story for like years into the desert. Paul disappears off of the stage. And Jesus, as we've talked about, is going to lead Paul at other times into other deserts, into prisons, into places where he's like taken out of the game, so to speak. And he's doing this in some ways to protect Paul from Paul. <laughs> but in some ways also to make him shine even brighter. Jesus leads Paul into the desert and you get this feeling of like the potter just like working this dry clay, breaking it up until it's soft. 
And the reason I say all this, because all the way now circling back to our, what we've been looking at through Thessalonians, you see this moment of Paul where he actually is shining. And it's confused people because Paul is going to stand up there and he's going to say, look at me, I'm righteous, I'm blameless. <laughs> and you're like, this sounds like the old Paul, doesn't it? The one who thought he had achieved and earned all this and had all this power and prestige. But what you see on the other side is a Paul who, who is still Paul, still shining, but whose heart has been softened, whose ego has been checked. And so in 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 13, Paul, the, the narcissist who was persecuting the church, now says this. He says, You remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. And this, God, this message, this gospel that Paul teaches, speaks right into the brokenness of where these people are at and gives them this transcendent perspective. This is not Paul's message. This is God's message to them coming through Paul. And the proof of the righteousness is that it comes with such compassion. This man who once persecuted the church in his self-righteousness now has this parental heart. It sees all these children and his heart is so moved to serve them blamelessly, authentically, to pour his life out as a servant. And what comes with this, I, I love this because I think this should cast vision for us, is that Paul writes this with such confidence. He's being probably wrongfully accused in this situation. As he responds to this church, there are probably people that are saying, oh, you know, Paul, he's just in it for his own thing. You know, Paul, this is all about Paul. It's all about his glory. Or he's trying to twist this into some way of gaining. And they're probably thinking of the old Paul, maybe. And Paul's going, no, that guy's gone. <laughs> or maybe not entirely gone, but mostly gone. I stand up to you with, in front of you blameless. Why? Because I've just served. I've done everything to serve you and to serve God. And I don't know about you, but when people question me, that generally isn't how I respond. Right? I'm like, nuh-uh. That's not why I did that. They're the ones that did that, right? They're the ones who, like I point back, right? Shift that around. I put the blame back on them and... Paul just goes, eh, I'm blameless. I've done this for the right reasons. There's a, a quiet confidence there. And this is where I think this is really helpful because we are called to this posture of meekness, but that's not incongruent with what we just see in this text. 
Paul's like, let God judge, <laughs> right? But my heart's blameless. Man, that quiet confidence, like, helps you sleep well at night. And, and in so many ways, that's what we're called to as a church, is to just, as followers of Christ, to live in that space of quiet confidence. That is the freedom of the gospel. And part of that freedom is where our lives are incongruent. We like confess up and go, oh yeah, ooh. I don't know if any of you had a few of those moments this last week. I had a couple of like, oh, the worst Jeff. There's that thing in me that's small, gets afraid, that clutches too hard. Which reminds me, God's like still like, we're working on that, Jeff. Like working that clay, right? Still at work. And it can be uncomfortable to see those parts of ourselves. I think some of following after Christ requires us to develop an appetite for that kind of work. That when God comes in and we find ourselves going into a bit of a desert, we're like, okay, I trust you. I need this. See if there be any wicked way in me. Most of us like to pray that prayer. See if there be any wicked way in them, because I'm pretty sure, God, I'm pretty sure you'll find some impure motives over there. And he's saying, like, it's just not your business, right? But, but for us to, to hold our hearts out there and say, God, see if there be any wicked way in me. The freedom that gives, because the gospel comes and speaks so compassionately to those things. It comes in and it speaks love. It speaks grace. Oftentimes, if I think I had to name this root I, of, of sin, this thing in me that needs to go, I would say pride. And I think that's helpful, but Brene has been helping me with this. Brene Brown has written this book called Atlas of the Heart, which is all these like little definitions, Right? And she's going to argue, pride's a good thing. Which, you know, don't let that contradict Scripture. I mean, she's like trying to get at the texture of like where the problem really lies. And she says this, that she defines pride as a feeling of pleasure or celebration related to our accomplishments or efforts. And she's saying that's actually good. Right? Have you ever felt like that sort of pride it's not necessarily an ugly thing. It's what we do with it that turns it ugly. I was thinking this. Um, I'd like a confession to Austin because I love Arsenal, who lost yesterday, but I, I also love Man City. In Man City, this is like British Premier League soccer, right? Football. But... Um, so Jeremy Doku is like this new player for Man City, and he's like been out of his stride. He's supposed to be this like next best thing, but he's kind of underperformed. And like Saturday, this guy found his sweet spot. But watching him play, yeah, he scored a couple goals. Big deal. It was like his assists where he was like navigating through, and then he would just put it right in front of the person, right, that would score the goal, that would just like tap it in. And of course, there's this giant celebratory moment. Whoever, whoever gets that ball into the net gets to celebrate. 
And I honestly love this part of the game. And I, so sorry if this example falls flat, but they run out to that flag at the corner and they stand or they slide out there in, the, in front of their fans. And there's this like brief moment of like elation. People go crazy. And I always think, I think that's a good thing. This person that scored that goal has this moment of like beautiful glory where you're like, that was brilliant, right? Stand there at that flag and then get back in the game. But what I loved is I think it was Bernardo Silva had like tapped this one shot in, but like Doku, it was all him. And so Bernardo Silva runs out to the flag and then turns around and points at Jeremy. And like, I go, oh, that's like glorious. Now, I realize this is athletics and it's really a small thing in so many ways, but this picture of pride, of like the texture of that, that it doesn't mean we can't run out to the flag and be like, that was awesome, right? But to turn around and point to that other person, this like deferred sense of glory, that, that when we can hold it in that way, we shine. And like a parent watching their child on the stage, you're like, yes. And God going, I want your capacity for glory to only increase. But we got to do is get rid of what Brene calls hubris, which would be actually technically, if we look at that word pride through the New Testament, that's the word, that's the Greek root. And hubris is an inflated sense of one's own innate abilities tied more to the need for dominance than to actual accomplishments. And do you find that? I mean, this is like something that for me is always embarrassing to admit is like how competitive I can be even just in my own mind, in my own comparison, my own insecurity and my own jealousy. Hubris just wants to win. I've got room for other people to win as long as I win too, right? That competition, that thing that's driven around some deep sort of need. And and what we find is generally speaking, when that hubris as it grows, what they find is at the root of that thing, what turns it into violence, what turns it into evil, what turns it into exploitation, underneath that dominance is this deep shame. And in the research, they find this again and again and again, that we're striving for this sort of glory that's only building and intensifying our inward shame. And you see how God is this loving father is looking at this brokenness in us. He's saying, stop chasing after that thing. Paul says it so beautifully in Philippians 3. He says, if anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I think that's what Paul would identify as the hubris, confidence in the flesh. He says, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding um, zeal persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. He's like, I got a PhD from Harvard. Um, I like, I have all the credentials that you guys care about, right? I was the captain. I was like the quarterback of the football team. Like I dominated everything. He says, but everything that was a gain to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that God based on righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. So what allows Paul to live in this place of like transcendent hope. He's not living for this world. He's not living for that small success. He calls it dung. And I've told you this before. In the Greek, that's actually a vulgar word that he uses. You could probably find the English equivalent on your own, right? But it's, he's being profane in a sense. He's like going, this is garbage. It's worthless. Why? Because it was all about him all about him dominating, all about him being admired, all about him being exalted. And he goes, that game is just a joke. He's given it all up. He's embraced the suffering. He's walked through the desert. And at the same time, he's starting to shine. And this is where Paul, like you see him as this work of art. Jesus looking at Paul and going, yeah, that's my guy. Look at him shine. And Paul gets to still be Paul. He's like out there like starting churches and he's super driven and he's writing all these letters and he's prolific and he's Paul being Paul in all those wonderful things about Paul, but freed, freed from this sickness. Paul doesn't stop being type A. If you're like type A and you're driven, guess what? It's okay, right? Stop doing that, though, for your own exaltation. If you're timid and you're meek and you're holding back, God's going to pull you out on the stage. He's going to ask you to, like, stand up straight. He's going to ask you to use your gifts to invest those things, but to do it in a way that's free. I like this. Brene is going to say that humility is openness to new learning combined with a balanced and accurate assessment of our contributions, including our strengths, imperfections, and opportunities for growth. It's just walking in the light. We're not pretending to be something we're not. We're trying, not trying to look better than we are. It's just us. But we're able to operate in that place of our us-ness. Just being you that gives God so much pleasure. And I think this is the gift, as Paul's saying to his people, live these noble lives. Lives worthy of the gospel. It's going to live in this place of freedom. Give up that striving to attain praise and admiration and applause. Let that go. It's garbage. And here's the thing is that God, I think, is so often lovingly helping us with this. He oftentimes calls us into places that are humbling, but also pushes us into places where we have to be more than we are. Sometimes it costs us, but sometimes it asks more of us to be courageous. We talk about our church desiring it to be a safe place to heal but also a brave space to grow. And that's what we want, right? That's the hunger. 
Rick Scott getting up here and making that announcement, which was brilliant, Rick. Well done, right? I saw you hold the mic with two hands. It's awesome. Like God asks us to be more. And for Paul, it just brings him such joy. He says, this is why we constantly thank God because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. I uh, remember a professor one time saying, when somebody comes up to you after like a sermon and says, wow, well done, don't say, oh, it was all God. He's like, it wasn't that good. <laughs> like, let me clarify, Jeff. Like, no, I mean, I'm not, a capable, I'm not capable of that level of brilliance. Like, wow. Um, you know what I'm saying there, right? He's going, there's something about just simply going, like, I am a vessel. But what so often people want to do for you as a pastor is say, wow, you tied that in so specifically into my life. And you're like, yeah, that's totally out of my control. (laughs) But not outside of God's control, right? And I think, I hesitate to use that because it's such a, like, spiritual reference of pastoral. But you go, every single one of your lives is like that. God at work, God doing that thing, God creating opportunities, just saying, let me do it. We've got to go to the Lord's table. I'm, my talk's a little bit long today. So, but I want to close with this last thing that I, I think is, well, two things. But yeah, I mean, my, one of my favorite guys, you know, is, is Dallas Willard. And um, And I've shared this story before, but one of my favorite things he ever wrote was, it wasn't written, it was transcribed. He got in front of a group of philosophy students that were like, how do you get tenure at USC? What's the trajectory? What's the strategy? How do you open the doors? And he comes back with this example. He just basically says this, well, just work really hard on like the work and don't worry about the opportunities. He says, I decided I would do nothing to try to secure myself or gain advancement. I'm very much a literalist in terms of the Bible. The Bible says promotion does not come from the East or the West. It comes from the Lord. So, okay, I don't have to do anything about promotion. But what I did was this. I said, I'm going to do the best work I can by God's help. And that meant in writing and teaching. And once again, it wasn't that I was smart. The Lord just guided me. So I worked on papers And my idea was that if I was any good, I would be able to send it to the best journals where no one knew me and it would be accepted. There's the strategy, right? Try to create a workshop around that, right? Well, I just believe the Bible's true, so I don't worry about promotion and I just focus on the work. But he's like, you're not alone. God is in that work. God says, yeah, I want you to invest everything you've got in this, but don't promote yourself. Don't go seeking opportunity. Don't try to find your own advancement. Let me do that. The freedom that that gives us. Simply show up and do the work and do it the very best. Do it to a level that's beyond where you have to lean on God in dependence. 
Paul's going to say this in Philippians, do everything without grumbling or arguing so you may be blameless and pure. Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. That's what God wants to do with each one of your hearts. It's like, let it just shine like this star. What God is also going to do is purify that star. Make it clean, heal it so it's not turned inward, but just able to radiate the light that God shines through us. Quick questions and then we'll go to communion. Are there ways you are noticing hubris in your life? Are you paying attention? Do you catch yourself playing for the approval of others and competing with others? If you're me, the answer is yes. But so often in focusing on others, right, I conveniently avoid those things inwardly. What's wrong with the world? I am. How could you instead practice being a servant to those whom you compare or compete with? How can you elevate your level of compassion towards those who are around you in a way that doesn't gain others' admiration? How do you serve, maybe in secret? What did Mother Teresa say? If you want to change the world, start by loving your family. And three, are there hopes and passions in your heart that remain undiscovered? How might you lean completely into the work and let go of the opportunity What are the noble desires of your heart that God wants to use and let shine to live a life worthy of the gospel?